you wind up meeting this guy who owns a famous dive bar called the Florabama. It's right on the, it's right on the state line between Florida and Alabama. And the guy gives him a, a, a card where he can eat he can eat cheeseburgers and drink beer for free. And that's like Tony's lifeline. He's there six nights a week. And um, this this woman at the bar sees him in, in his Titleist hat. And she's like, oh, I don't know anything about golf, but except that you know my dad's favorite player is, is Marco Mira. And Tony, you know, with a wolfish grin says, you're not going to believe this. I am Marco Mira. And, um, you know, they wind up spending the night together and he signs the hat for the father. Like, probably the only time in history that being Marco Mira helped you get laid, but it worked. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Golf.com podcast. I'm your host, Sean Zock, and today we're going to break down everything you might find in the most recent issue of Golf Magazine, that is the May issue. Three stories in particular caught my eye. Uh, those were done by Alan Shipnuck, Michael Bamberger, and Ryan Aselta. I'm going to talk with all three of those guys, the first being Shipnuck. Alan, good morning. Let's talk about Tony Ruggiero and his students. Yeah, that was a really fun story to do for, um, for Golf Magazine, which you can find on newsstands and in your mailbox right now, um, and of course on digitally and golf.com. How's yeah. my product placement so far, Sean? So so far, you've you've nailed it. Uh, the story yeah. is Gang of Four. <laughs> the title is is Gang of Four. It's about Tony Ruggiero. He is a top 100 teacher for our magazine. Uh, he's also, you know, obviously a coach for a lot of guys on tour. Uh, a handful of guys that you were able to help profile within this story. But do me a favor for the listeners and, and just describe who Tony Ruggiero is. Well, he's quite a character. He's uh, He's an Alabama guy, and he's a quite a raconteur and quite a storyteller and schmoozer, big personality, really fun to be around, has kind of knocked around various segments of the golf world. At one point, he had a mattress store. He called them love objects. And uh, so, you know, around his 30th birthday, he decided that he wanted to be, uh, you know, dedicate his life to teaching. It had always been a dream, but... He had a daughter he had to support. He was kind of late to get into it. And so he he's just been slowly working his way up the ranks, working at you know public courses and then resorts and then finally a country club of Mobile where they built him a whole uh, practice facility. And uh, he's been, he has this whole stable of young players. Basically, basically, if you're a good golfer from the state of Alabama, you know Tony and Tony knows you. And so Smiley Kaufman was... Um, you know, he's an LSU grad, but he grew up in Alabama. And Smiley was the first guy to break through. He, uh, you know, as a, as a young guy, he won a tournament not too long after he'd come under Tony's tutelage, and that helped that helped establish Tony a little bit more. And the stable just grows and grows. He's now working with Lucas Glover, the U.S. Open champ, uh, Tom Lovelady, who's a tour rookie, and there's there's a dozen guys between the Web, Latino America, Canadian Tour who are ascendant. So. You know, in a matter of years, Tony's going to be a brand name, but we kind of wanted to capture him before that happens. You know, what what's it, what is the life like for for a tour pro who's not a brand name? You know, we all know David Ledbetter and Butch Harmon and those guys, but um, we wanted to kind of get in the grind of it. And so I, I spent a few days with him and, and his, his stable out at Palm Springs, and the story was pretty much done, and then Smiley fired him. Yeah. <laughs> and that added a whole wrinkle to the piece. And I had to rewrite a lot of it and then report it over the phone. I, um, I got Smiley to talk to me, which was classy on his part. And, and of course, Tony and I talked about the whole thing in, in great detail. And 
on one hand, it was inconvenient for me because I had, I had to blow up the story I'd already written, but it made it richer and a more interesting tale to kind of go behind the scenes of this breakup and how it affected Tony emotionally and how what it means for this this small tight knit group of guys that he he rolls with it practically every week on tour. So it's um it's 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 about it's it's about him and his story. It's about the guys he works with. It's about their chemistry. It's uh, kind of behind the scenes of life on tour. There's a lot going on in the story, and I, I think it's a fun read for for uh, the subscribers and uh, the users of, of Golf.com and Golf Magazine. Yeah. So so you alluded to various parts of it. One of those parts, obviously, being that he has chemistry, uh, and it's not just between him and the players, but it's kind of those players around each other, and with him included in the fold. Why is that abnormal, or is it abnormal when it comes to to players on tour to kind of have, you know, shared relationships because of a shared coach? Yeah, I mean, golf has become much more of a team sport uh, than than it ever was. You know, these guys were always kind of lone rangers, and uh, now as the money's gotten bigger, uh, and if you're a top player, you have you have an entourage, and you have a you have a swing coach, you you have a sports psychologist. Of course, you have your caddy. You might have an osteopath. You might have um, a nutritionist, a trainer, and so more and more at the, the highest levels, guys need this this support. And what's interesting about 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 Tony is he kind of bridges the gap where um, his players like to play practice rounds together. Tony often uh, hosts you know cookouts or happy hours at the house he rents. So there's a lot of long dinners at steakhouses, and so he he works really hard to kind of foster this team feeling. That's what made the the, the breakup with with Smiley painful because he was a huge part of all of that, and um, and so his his players enjoy that camaraderie. I, I think it's uh, it's helpful um, to give you a sense of comfort that that you have you know some teammates out there in essence, and um, so it and for 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 Tony it's practical because he can he can go out and play you know eighteen holes and keep an eye on you know two or three of his guys at the same time. So it's uh, it, it was it was neat to, to tap into that chemistry and and that that good feeling and um, at the same time he's he's not like a lead better who you know has has this philosophy on how the club should be swung and his players kind of get a lot of the same information and, and a lot of the same theory irrespective of their body types or their tendencies I mean Tony's very much you know Butch Harmon is 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 his, his hero and his his role model and. You know, like like Butch, um, you know Tony's feeling is every player is different. They they need to be themselves, and so what he's telling Lucas Glover is very different from what he's telling Tom Lovelady, which is very different from what he was telling Smiley Kaufman um, versus all these other players. And so it's interesting to watch him, and, and even the bedside manner is different. Uh, you know, uh, like guy like Lucas Glover, who's kind of an OG, he just he just wants a set of eyes on him. He doesn't want a lot of information. Just how's my alignment? Uh, you know. A couple questions here and there, and that's it. You know, Love Lady. He he was he's a rookie. He's trying to make his bones, and he's he's a field player, but he wants a lot of feedback. So, you know, I want to hit I want to hit this two iron lower. What should I do? Um, and they'll talk about different ways to swing the club, different ways to set up to the ball, um, different thoughts. And and you know, a guy like Smiley, who was you know a cat on a hot tin roof. I mean, he wanted every swing. He wanted copious amounts of feedback from a technical standpoint you know how was my elbow how, how was my turn what how was the, the the steepness of my swing and 
so all this is happening simultaneously, you know, on every hole, on every shot, and it was it was really interesting to watch how that how how Tony operated, how he balanced the different personalities and the, the different needs of of the players. Yeah, I think that that becomes really apparent. It's one of the pull quotes in the story. It talks about being a swing coach and a psychologist and a best buddy. I know that I've talked to Smiley, and it was included in your story. It's just like he he for a long time considered Tony Ruggiero to be. I know it's a joke, but a life coach uh, in many ways. He, they talk on the phone all the time. I think that that's just one aspect of the player-coach relationship that gets lost. It's not, it's not like uh, Tyron Liu and LeBron James who kind of see each other at practice and stuff. I mean, these kind of coaches are, are out there with them, and then they're away from them, but they're always kind of in contact with these guys. Yeah, it speaks to the affection that his players have for him, that even after Tony and, and Smiley kind of ended their their professional relationship, you know, Smiley said, I'm still calling him all the time. You know, he, he was getting married. He was, uh, you know, buying houses and whatever. And he, he would just call up Tony just for advice, not even about golf, uh, just about life. Or he, he was also calling him to pick his brain, like, who should my next swing coach be? I mean, imagine that. It's like if you break up with a girl, then you call her and say, hey, I'm thinking about these other two women I might want to date. What are your thoughts on them? You know, it's pretty, it's a pretty rare um, bit of open communication, and, and it speaks to the uh, – kind of the affection they have and, and the trust and uh, so I thought that was really cool I mean that that even though they've uh, they had this kind of professional rupture there was still that 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 connection between between Smiley and Tony and um, you know his players they really do because of the time as you said they spend even off the golf course they, they do look to him for a lot of guidance in a lot of ways and it, it was neat to kind of capture that in the story yeah the, the lead photo on the story is Ruggiero sitting around a table, just cracking it up with Lucas Glover, Love Lady, uh, as well as the sports psychologist, Greg Carton. Uh, why, why do you think that's the, a fitting lead photo for this story? Yeah, I mean, certainly they, we could have had him on the golf course, you know, holding a guy's head down while he's swinging, which is like, you see that photo all the time of, of swing coaches. And, uh, and they're, they're, as, as you get deeper into the story, there are some of those kind of photos. But it, we really wanted to capture the, the feeling of what it was because Tony's a hilarious guy. I mean, he, some people may know him. He has the, the Dew Sweepers radio show on um, on satellite radio, and he, he's just a really funny dude. And you can't not be around him and and have a laugh. And I think in the picture, everyone's holding a glass of wine. I mean, he he loves his crushed grapes, and his players do too. I took I took uh, Tony and, and Tom Lovelady out to dinner at the steakhouse and. Um, in Palm Springs, I think the bill is 800 bucks. I mean, they were, they were getting these bottles of Brunello from deep in the cellar, and uh, that's just kind of how they do it. And uh, so to, if you look at those pictures, there's a couple in, in the magazine, there's a couple pictures, and in each of them, Lucas Glover is like doubled over. He looks like he's gasping for air. He's laughing so hard. But I love that uh, because it really that's really what it's like to hang out with Tony. So... Uh, you, you get a feel. Just look, you look at that photo, and you automatically know there's there's a warmth there, there's an affection, and you can understand why his players like being around him, and you know why they're loyal to him. Totally. Now, is there anything that got cut from the Mag story that you felt um, people should know about? Well, sure. I mean, when you spend that much time together, there was. I mean, I, I could have written a book. It's, I mean, it was funny, but before I'd even met Tony, I, I we're just I'm I'm, I'm at the range at. Um, you know, at Palm Springs, and he says, yeah, we're, I, I said, where are you? I can't find you. He's like, oh, we're on the back of the range. You know, there's, it's like, Smiley wants some privacy. And so I, I, I go out there, 
and they're having a full-blown intervention because he was he was in the throes of a slump. And it, it was Tony and Smiley's caddy, and the short game coach, and they were huddled around Smiley, who was just like lost. And it was really poignant. I mean, they were they were trying to talk him off the ledge, basically. Jeez. And I wound up not using that, but I really hadn't even shaken Tony's hand yet. I just kind of stepped into that scene. I, but that was kind of the, the kind of access I had and the um, and the um, intimacy. And you know, that, that's what makes for a really good story is when you can take people behind the scenes and you can um, you can show them things they don't see on TV. And that was kind of the whole point of the story. And I will say, there's two of my favorite things that have ever appeared in print are in this story. One is there's there's a quote from Mac Barnhart who represented Tony and Smiley, and so he was kind of in the middle of this, this divorce, and, you know, he's talking he's talking about how when a player's struggling, the swing coach often gets gets fired just because they have to make a change. And he's like, when they, when they raid the whorehouse, they shoot the piano player, too. Every time I read that, that makes me laugh. And then there's one of the all-time greatest stories ever. This, this will tell you, like, you know, Tony's quite a character, so... He in his in his early days of being a swing coach when he's making like 200 bucks an hour and his car has been repossessed and electricity has been turned off, he uh, he winds up meeting this guy who owns a famous dive bar called the Florabama. It's right on the it's right on the state line between um, Florida and Alabama, and the guy gives him a, a, a card where he can eat he can eat cheeseburgers and drink beer for free, and that's like Tony's lifeline. He's there six nights a week, and um, you know he's he's quite a bar fly, right? And um, this this woman at the bar sees him in, in his Titleist hat, and she's like, "Oh, I don't know anything about golf, but except that you know my dad's favorite player is, is Mark O'Meara." And Tony, you know, with a wolfish grin, says, "You're not going to believe this. I am Mark O'Meara." And um, you know, they wind up spending the night together, and he signs the hat for the father. <laughs> like it was the very least he could do. Yeah. And um, I, it's just such a hilarious story. It's probably the only time in history that being Marco Mira helped you get laid, but it worked. Yeah. I don't think Marco Mira could ever play that card, but Tony <laughs> was was charming enough and uh, had enough game he pulled it off. But so that you know that, that's kind of the tone of the story. I mean, it is a lot of laughs, and uh, even though there's some serious hardcore golf stuff, but the guy the guy's a character, and I definitely wanted to capture that. Yeah, I feel like Tony could probably pull off the Omiro look. They kind of look similar. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly, and this was this was pre-smartphones. Like now, you're just like, probably, I don't know, you'd probably like Google Marco Mir and say, actually, you don't look anything like him. But in the in those, those more innocent days, uh, it worked. So it's, I mean, it's just like such a funny story. Yeah. Well, the story is uh, Gang of Four, and it's in the May issue of Golf Magazine. That's with Billy Horschel on the cover. Uh, our next story comes from Michael Bamberger. It is on Kakwa Club. It's a Donald Ross design, and it is in Erie, Pennsylvania. Now, Michael, this is in the back page column of Golf Magazine. You come up with ideas for this column all over the place. How did you find this story? Um, well, in, in this, I appreciate the question very much. Um, and uh, what I do is I read uh, widely. I read newspapers and magazines pretty much all day long. That's about all I do. And... and um, I take long showers as well, where I do a lot of rumination. And uh, over the winter, around Christmas time, I read about uh, Erie PA getting, I think if I remember this correctly, about five feet of snow in the space of what's called about 48 hours. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, and um, it just stuck in my head, how are these people going to deal with this come spring? What kind of effect is it going to have? Well, then as the uh, the winter progressed, it was a bad winter throughout the United States. Uh, but uh, up in Erie, PA, which is uh, sort of sandwiched between um, – uh, Buffalo in Cleveland, um, not, it, it, it's right smack dab in between. It's right on, on Lake Erie. They have a, uh, a winter quality called the, um, the lake effect, and you get uh, moisture mm-hmm. up the lake and cold, um, dry air from Canada, and the two meet each other, and they get a tremendous amount of snow. And this year, it's in the story, uh, but I think they got about 14 feet of snow. So it, it just over the course of the, uh, the winter, it, the thought occurred to be more these people are going to have to, uh, you know, dig out of a mountain of snow. And what's it going to be like? So th- that was the genesis. That got me thinking about Erie. And then once I was thinking about Erie, I remember from years ago, uh, guys used to talk about this, uh, this Cockwood, uh golf course, uh, uh, guys being uh, tour players of a certain vintage uh, because they would play a two-day event there, and the guys loved They all loved it. And I knew that Fred had played it. And uh, my friend Mike, uh, my friends uh, Mike Donald and Bill Britton and uh, many others have played it over the years. Uh, now you jumped in your Subaru and you drove eight hours through the snow to, to chase this story. I mean, were you ever, were, did you know what you were looking for? Did you, did you kind of have in mind how you might write the story or did you feel like you needed to, to see a lot to spend a full day there? Yeah, I'm, I'm not good. Um, and I try not to anticipate almost anything in life, but particularly, um, in my reporting life, you know, my thing is, you know, what happens, happens, and you're going to write up uh, whatever you see. I knew I wanted to see it for myself. That, you know, there's no way to write that without seeing it. Um, really, the driving conditions were really pretty hazardous as I was picking, pulling into Erie. And I was half thinking, like, um, this better be a good story because this is, uh, <laughs> this is hairy stuff. There's a wonderful story in The New Yorker a couple of weeks ago about a guy driving, John Seabrook is his name, driving with his, I think, nine-year-old daughter in uh, Vermont, I think on I-91 maybe, and um, and he did basically a 180 on black ice, and then he goes into a long discourse as to what really is black ice, uh, which I read after the fact. But uh, any event, so, no, I didn't really go up with any expectation except for I really wanted to see the golf course, see the guy who's got to maintain the course, and write up whatever, you know, whatever it is, write it up. To, to say you want to see the golf course is something that, they could easily make happen for you in March, but not not when you were reporting this necessarily. Was it a guarantee that you'd see the golf course? So how did they kind of help scratch that itch for you? Well, they were uh, uh, Jason Sudo, the um, the greenkeeper, the super course superintendent, was extremely accommodating. He, by the way, he his wife works in Cleveland, and they live midway between Cleveland and Erie. So this guy drives about an hour fifteen every day to work. Uh, also driving through Lake Effect snow, except for he's doing it at 4:30 in the morning, uh, you know, five days a week. Except for when the snow gets too bad, then he stays overnight uh, and sleeps on an air mattress or on a mattress uh, uh, right in the uh, right in the maintenance shed. Um, That's crazy. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it it is kind of crazy. But uh, you know, what, one of the, one of the things I find that uh, has helped me my reporting life, I'm sure this is true for other reporters, is that. Um, email is so efficient. You can write to somebody and say exactly what it is that you want to do um, and spell it all out, and they can actually think about it. They have, they have a little time to think about it before getting back to you. So that's what I did in this case. I, I, uh, I got his email from the, uh, from the uh, club's uh, website, I believe is what I did, and, uh, and I just laid it out for him, and he was very accommodating. Couldn't have been nicer. 
So what did he actually do for you on the course? Uh, he showed me around. Uh, we got in this uh, glorified snowmobile, you might call it, um, and he showed me the golf course in the snow, and he showed me the cross-country trails that he's got to maintain and uh, the tree work that they were doing in the winter. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, he, he kept saying, it was like, you know, when the surfers always say, oh, you should have been here yesterday uh, because, you know, that's when the surf was good. It was like, oh, you should be here in June. By the way, their, their season, well, you know, one of the things in the story is that um, I think their official opening is somewhat in, in mid-May, mm-hmm. um, but the real opening is more like late May. Uh, so their season is basically June, July, August, September. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, you would hear their friend a lot, oh, you should see it when it's co- Oh, you got to come back when it's actually a golf course, you know, not just a cross-country, uh, cross-country track. Yeah, it's pretty easy to lose track of at least thinking about northern golf courses. Uh, I know that. Uh, where I grew up, they were pounded with 30 inches of snow only a couple of weeks ago in mid-April. So their golf season is already, uh, they're already trying to play catch-up. Um, but you, you you briefly discussed the Greater Erie Charity Golf Classic, uh, and that's something that not a lot of people will know about. Can you explain to the listeners what that is? And I think I wouldn't, uh, I, I don't think I would, well, I'm pretty sure I, that the only reason I heard of Cockwood Course club is because of that uh, that eerie uh that eerie classic it was a two-day midsummer event in the uh as far as i know in the 80s and the 90s maybe it goes back to the 70s and it was a um it was really like the early tour was which is local business people uh getting a purse together uh inviting uh, top players to come play their golf course putting them up giving them prize money inviting the public to come out and watch public pays money you pay the players, whatever left over goes to a charity. You know, that's how the tour began. Um, and that's what this, uh, that's what this Erie Classic was. And, uh, but they, I believe they did on a Monday, Tuesday, maybe a Tuesday, Wednesday, but no, it would have been Monday, Tuesday, because Wednesday would have interfered with the Pro-Am Day and the tour, but that would not have flied, flown. So uh, uh, they would play, uh, I don't know what the event was preceding. It might have been the old Flint event or, or you know, something up in the uh, – you know, in the upper Midwest or in the, in, in the Northeast, they'd fly the players in and they got, and, and because they have, they gave significant first place prize and because they took care of the players, put them up in a hotel and, and were just basically nice to them. They got Fred Couples. Now this is before he won the Masters, uh, Fuzzy Zeller. Uh, oh, you know, Jay Haas would play uh, any, any number of, I'm, I'm just sort of blanking out, but mm-hmm. Scores and scores of, of, of well-known players would come because it was an easy payday. The people were nice, and it was enjoyable, and they were, they were on the road anyhow. And um, I don't know if, if that, this particular event I know has, uh, is, is, no longer exists. Um, there must be some of these events that still exist. Uh, Billy Andre and Brad Faxon uh, have an event like this. Um, CBS used to be the, uh, the, the sponsor of it. Um, I believe that event must, must, must still go on. I haven't heard about it for a little while here. Um, but I think these events used to be more commonplace. And, um, and the reason that I heard about it, going back to probably the late 80s, because guys would say, the course is good. That was the one thing you mm-hmm. heard about, uh, beyond all else, uh, that the course is really good. And, uh, you know, these tour players, they don't get to play Donald Ross Classics uh, all that often. Um, Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that's that was one of the things. In addition to the payday, that was one of the things that really meant something to them. Yeah. So I mean, did you actually get to? If, did you actually bring merit? Did you get to see 
the course? Do you get to understand the course, or, or do you have to go back in June? Well, uh, Sean, what is your experience on your Wisconsin courses when they're buried in snow? Have, yeah. Do you ever go out on them and check them out? I have. Uh, I I don't know that uh, when I used to do it four or five years ago that I really appreciated them or appreciated that moment necessarily to learn what what the course really means. I think it you maybe you learn more about the surrounding parts of the hole as opposed to being on the turf between, with snow between your feet and the turf. I think I kind of appreciated the the more of the the landscape of the entire campus more so than well, just that, the course. That was precisely what I experienced at uh, this Erie course uh, is that the whole thing is blanketed in snow. Even when I got up there in uh, early March, you know, there was a foot or more of, of, of snow. And uh, so you've got this whole golf course blanketed in snow, so you can't see traps and you can't see greens. There's no leaves on the trees. There's this big, beautiful clubhouse, uh, you know, in the distance. But what you see is the sweep of land. And, you know, in this case, it's like a heaving sea. Uh, like if you were out in the uh, Atlantic, you know, you know, hundreds of miles uh, uh, offshore in a, and a big storm was coming in and you were like in that George Clooney movie and, uh, and whoo, it's going up and down and up and down. And uh, it's like you could wave your arm, you know, along the contours of the, of the, of the ground that, uh, that Ross chose uh, to build this golf course. And you could see why I chose it. So I had a, um, it's sort of, you know, seeing it in the snow just reduced it to, uh, to its simplest state. It's like, oh, yeah, I can see why he came here, you know, pre-bulldozer. Uh, he must have just been so jacked when he saw this piece of land. Was, it's not right on Lake Erie. It's maybe a mile or two away, but uh, I'm sure he had, you know, he could have, I'm guessing back then, you know, 100 plus years ago, he could have. He could have gotten any piece of land he wanted, and uh, I can see why he chose this one. So it was incredibly beautiful. Was, if, the, if some of the listeners I know will know the name Andy Wyeth, uh, a landscape painter from uh, from Pennsylvania, but uh, it looked like an Andrew Wyeth painting. So, so what do you think people need to take away from this story? Is it is it that uh, they need to you know think about the courses that uh, that deal with conditions like that, or is is it that there are people that that this is their world, this is golf to them? That is a completely different uh, version of golf at certain points of the year. Is it that? Well, those are, yeah, those are both neat things. And, uh, you know, I would say in general, my, I, I would never presume to answer that question for a reader. They can, they, and I've learned this over the years. It's like, it's amazing. You can write up somebody mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you've got one sense of what the person is like and a reader has it presented with the exact same words on a page. It's a completely different sense of, uh, of who the person is. So, so the reader can take, of course, whatever they want from it. But I would say one of the things is, for me, it's great to have an off season, uh, and uh, and this is an extreme example of an off season, and it's great to have a fresh start. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, that was very powerful for me as a kid uh, when I started playing golf in junior high school. Was that uh, you know we didn't play golf in the winter, and then uh, and then the Masters came. And uh, and you got back in golf season. Um, well, these people are the same, except for well, the Masters are being played. Their course is basically closed, mm-hmm. and they're waiting for uh, for mid-May. And um, you know, Nicholas talks about this a lot. That you know, he became the golfer he became because he played every sport in season. You know, he played basketball and in winter. I think he played football uh, in fall. I think spring was a. I think golf was a spring sport in Ohio. Then I'm not certain about that. But he played different sports in different seasons. 
and um, it's nice to give it a rest and and have something to uh, to come back and it's and of course you know this is part of the magic of the masters you know to watch these courses wake up in spring is just such a joy totally and it breeds the golf itch that dominates a lot of us who live in the north um that's great i like that a lot michael the story is spring fever by michael bamberger our next and final story featured uh, in the magazine was a q a with matt kuchar done by ryan aselta who joins me now in studio unlike the other two guys ryan what is it like to sit down with matt kuchar one-on-one it was fun i mean this is a guy I was intrigued by him, and the reason why I tried to get a sit-down with him, one, he's he's not easy to get. Um, he's got the same agent as uh, the big cat. Yeah. <laughs> so media is limited sometimes with, with Matt. Um, but I think he's a guy, he's, he's the every man's golfer out there. We see him all the time because he always contends. He's you know mm-hmm. Mr. Top Ten. He's always walking around smiling. Everyone is chanting his name. He's got the best nickname with Cooch, and you hear it all the time. Um, so he's very visible, but I started thinking, does anyone really know a whole lot about him? Does anyone know him? Because he doesn't talk that much. There's not tons of interviews other than his aw shucks, smiling, mm-hmm. you know, another top ten. So that's what kind of drew me to him. Um, and, it, you know, he, he came to the interview with that, that giant smile, very easygoing way about him, um, which kind of just – relaxed the whole atmosphere we did the interview down in naples florida it was 80 degrees sunny in december so the vibe was just really chill to begin with um and and that kind of fit his persona which was uh it made for a pretty relaxing and uh cool interview with him yeah now you talk about his demeanor with him i think we all kind of understand golf fans understand what his demeanor is because it's out there that's the most visual and most well-known part of him but did any of your experience with him like kind of change your perspective about him in any way? I don't know if it changed it. I think it reaffirmed it. Um, one thing that struck me last year was was at the Open Championship, the way he handled things when Spieth just went on such a tear. You know, they were pretty much even for most of that day, and yeah, then Spieth point, went off. At one point, Kucher had a one-shot lead. Yeah, on and you thought that this was going to be his time. I mean, he's he's never won that major title. It looked like it was going to be the time. Um and what it reaffirmed afterwards of what type of guy he is, having his family there, they surprised him, his wife and his two boys. He didn't know that they were coming to the final round. They hadn't been uh, over at the Open all week long, and they showed up there. And, you know, they saw Dad not get it done. And we talked a lot about that in the interview, how tough that was for him, how great it was to share the moment with his family and have them there, but also how tough it was to not be the hero to his kids, to, yeah. to come home second place, not be the winner. Um, and, I, you know, that was relatable. I'm a dad. To, to We have kids the same age, actually, uh, Matt and I. We've talked about that, uh, that the few times that we have gotten together. His kids are starting to try out golf and drive, chip, and putt and that type of thing. So I could relate to that feeling of he didn't feel like he let them down, but he, he wasn't Superman. Did you learn something from that? Uh I guess, yeah, I guess I learned that, you know, there's always a lesson to be learned by you and taught to your kids. And I think he felt that, that he showed his kids it's it's okay not to win, that that dad is human, that dad can still be your Superman, but he may not be bringing home the first place trophy this time. And, and that's okay. And it was, 
I don't know. It was very human. I, I don't know. These guys, are, you know, you see them on TV and they're inside the ropes and they, they hit golf balls a mile. But something like that, seeing him and then having him talk about that kind of humanized it a bit. Do you use that, uh, I guess, your own like aspects of your life, being a father, uh, being a golfer, when you are approaching a guy like Matt Kuchar or let's say you're approaching uh, Paul Casey or, or someone like that on tour, do you approach them with a sit down in that vein like, hey – these are the things that we have in common. Do you think that's a pretty good strategy? Yeah, I think it's a good strategy when when getting ready to interview any of these guys is to find a a something to relate to them with, some kind of common ground. Now, I'm not going to sit down with Justin Thomas and talk about kids. We're at different stages of our life. But I'll sit down and talk about college football with Justin Thomas, and there's a lot of guys like that. They'll talk college sports. You know, you, you've talked with enough tour pros they pretty much like to talk about anything other than golf yeah most of the time <laughs> i've found that so if you can find a common ground something relatable with them whether that be uh the teams they root for um you know it makes for an easier interview it makes for the, the small talk to be pretty comfortable um with matt it was pretty easy we're at the same stage of our lives like i said our mm-hmm. kids are the same age um they're very active in athletics and we've talked before a couple times we actually played nine holes together at a, at a pro-am event um a couple of years ago and we and his son actually played with us in the group so i got into talking with his son quite a bit and he was getting ready for the drive chip and putt uh, up in connecticut he was going to try that for the first time and so there was a lot of uh things that we could relate to each other on and kind of uh you know talk about outside of an you know hardcore interview setting yeah. which made it a lot easier it, it's definitely tricky when you approach these guys like you said you can talk about alabama football with justin thomas you can talk about college football with just about any of those guys but some of them are are very private, and you only know a couple things about them. So when you broach those topics that are the only known things about them, it's like cliche at that point, and they don't even want to like give you the time of day. I know I know that in my experience, it can be tricky. It's like if you go up to Steve Stricker and try and talk to him about Wisconsin sports, he's be like, "Yeah, that is something I'm known for." But he's right. you know all these guys have so many more layers that behind that yeah and you know what you kind of want to establish that comfort level with them early so that we if you go someplace in the interview that they usually don't want to be very revealing about yeah um there's a bit of trust that's developed and it can happen in a matter of five minutes that's one thing i really try and pride myself on is creating that comfort level where where the interview starts 10 minutes later they may be willing to talk about a few things that they may not have thought they were going to even go into when we started the interview and, and have that comfort, whether it's family or uh, a key moment in their life away from the golf course. Um, you know, they'll answer the questions, the X's and O's questions about golf. But, you know, I think when you're doing an interview like a Matt Kuchar, mm-hmm. um, you, you don't want to hear much about how he strikes his nine iron. You want to dig a little deep and see what he's like as a person, what he does away from the course, how he is with his family, what he likes to do for fun. Um, you know, whose chops he likes to bust the most. And we got into that quite a bit. So you establish that trust and that comfort level, and I think it makes for a better interview. Yeah, he's definitely known as one of the guys that busts some chops out there. Uh, he even he even got into to you a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he did. I kind of set him up because, you know, he's known – uh, especially when it comes to the Ryder Cup and the team events of the guy who just likes to needle guys. Yeah. And if, if you saw on the mag the way they, they titled it, the, the devil and Matt Kuchar with the, the devil horn scribbled on his face. I mean, yeah, he's the, he's the jokester. He's the guy who's going to um, bust chops a little bit. 
he, he you know his favorite targets he says of course for Mickelson Zach Johnson he likes to get on those guys quite a bit um he's not afraid to mix it up and have it thrown back at him he actually I think he respects the guys that can quickly turn it around yeah uh but yeah I set him up I I, I said you know <laughs> I said you're sitting with me we're teeing it up right now Matt you know what's the first thing you're gonna get on me about and right away I mean seriously two seconds he gets on me about what I'm wearing he called me looking like I'm trying to be like Ricky Fowler, a fake Puma outfit I had on. And I'm like, whoa, I'm like, I'm not even wearing Puma. I'm not trying to look like Ricky. I had some I had some unique threads on, Sean. I mean, this was good stuff. I wasn't wearing the off-the-rack Puma stuff here. But he just started busting my chops about it. And he ended the interview calling me Little Ricky, yep. which is pretty funny. But shows that he's he's very quick-witted where, you know, Two three seconds, he can find something to, to bust on me about. Yeah, let's let's wrap up with with Kucher on his career in total. Like you, he's won seven times on tour, uh, zero major victories, and he's thirty nine years old. I mean, how do you think he views his career? It's interesting. I, I asked him about his career quite a bit and, and his demeanor. I asked if his demeanor gets misconstrued sometimes as a lack of intensity because, let's yeah. face it, he's always smiling. And that was the only time where he kind of bucked up a little bit and said, well, I'm not the one that's construing that. And I said, oh, all right. Um, he clearly wants to win. Mm-hmm. And he's proud of his career. I mean, he's had a very, very strong career with the wins, but also, like I said, he's Mr. Top 10. He's always around the top of that leaderboard. $43 million in career earnings. And seven wins. That's pretty amazing stuff right there. And, he, you know, he, he came in with high expectations with his career at Georgia Tech and the U.S. Amateur as a young kid. Seven career wins, but no major. And that's, a, you know, obviously a question he gets quite a bit. Um, he wants a major championship. He thinks he's good enough to win a major championship. And he gave me the sense that he's confident that that time is coming. He talked about the Open last year at Spieth, and he said there's nothing more he could have done. Yeah. He didn't go and lose that golf tournament. Jordan Spieth just went off and took it. And, you know, he's friends with Jordan, and he respects what Jordan did, and that was it. He looked back on and said, I'm satisfied with what I did to try to win that championship. There's nothing more I mm-hmm. could have done to try to win that major. So, I mean, coming out of the interview as a whole, when you look at his career, I'm rooting for Matt Kuchar. I, I want Matt Kuchar to get his name off that list of best yeah. players never to win a major because he's likable, he's fun, and he's he's good. A guy with his resume probably should have at least one major. So championship. that's what I was going to ask you. Is like there's this sense that uh, across all the names that that some people should win a major. Ricky Fowler should win a major, right? He hasn't yet, but he he should. I think Lee Westwood should have won a major. Um, I don't know if I see Matt Kuchar in that way that he should. I mean, he's he's only been at his peak the fourth ranked player in the world. Uh, as you said, the king of the top 10, top 15 in career earnings. So may- maybe I'm wrong. Do you think that he should have won one, that he should win one? Yeah, I'm not. Nothing sticks out where, you know, you say should, that he had won he had one in the bag, and he threw it away. Mm-hmm. I, there's not one that really jumps out there. He's played into contention at quite a bit. Um, he's been in contention at the Masters, obviously, at the Open. Um, I, when I say should, I just think a guy of his consistency, caliber of play, and he's shown he he can win golf tournaments, period. He's won some big ones. He's, I mean, he won the Players' Championship, obviously a huge one for him. Um, he's won some WGC events so 
he knows how to win big events. I, I just think it's a matter of, of timing. And he, he talked about that, that, that a lot of it plays into it is just timing. That week, if you got it going or if someone's got it going a little better than you, they may edge you out. And maybe that was his time last summer at the Open, and Spieth just may have taken it from him. I'm hoping that's not the case, though. Yeah. Well, speaking of timing, I think I think we're running short on time. I think that's a great wrap-up point. Uh, Ryan Aselta and Matt Kuchar in the May issue of the magazine it is titled The Devil in Matt Kuchar. That is it for this magazine-centric podcast. A lot of work goes into these stories. Sometimes they just don't get enough play online, so here they are in your ears for a podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zock. Mm-hmm.